Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2,288. Well, all this week we've been celebrating the La Jolla Concord Elegance. It takes place on April 21st, 22nd, and 23rd, overlooking the Pacific Ocean in beautiful La Jolla, California. You can learn more about attending this event and get your tickets on the website at LaJollaConcord.com. I'll be there and I hope to see you on the lawn. Be prepared to be inspired. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in North Tustin, California, with a very special guest by the name of Bruce Juner. Bruce, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? I think I'm ready, yes, Mark. Yeah, definitely. We're going to have some fun today. Now, before I give you an introduction and we talk about your involvement in the La Jolla Concours and the many other things you've done with this amazing life of yours, what's one little thing about Bruce Juner that most people may not know? I suppose it's fair to say I'm I'm a light, small plane pilot. I have a small plane license. I'm not current, uh, or at least I'm not safe. But but I could a little practice, be get my license current and be checked out. That requires, of course, uh, the, the the wallet is supported. So, uh, but that's that's a novelty. Yeah, flying is expensive for sure. And, you know, before we start today, Bruce, I wondered if you'd share with us uh, your age, because you have been around for a little while, my friend. Yeah, I'm 91 years old. And so, um, you know, that's another thing that will probably give me some some stares and I fly airplanes, but <laughs> I try not to look at it, look like that. I'll put on some false eyelashes and, and a big <laughs> nose and maybe that'll get me by the FAA. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. Well, allow me to give you a proper introduction here. You know, in a life like yours, as long and rich as it's been, it's hard to condense it into a small bio, but I'm going to do my best here. Bruce Jerner is a docent at this year's La Jolla Concor. He and his docent team offer informed tours for special guests at Concor events and other events as well. His career as an engineer includes time with Ford Aerospace, consulting, management, operations, manufacturing, and time with some icons in the automotive world. He worked with Carol Shelby at Shelby American in the mid-60s as their manager of production and operations when they were building the modified Mustang GT350 and Cobra cars. Bruce also was programs manager responsible for sales, manufacturing, and logistics at the All-American Racers with that guy named Dan Agurney. They were manufacturing Eagle race cars and spare parts as well. Bruce is a U.S. Army veteran and was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. Thank you for your service service my friend we'll be back in just a moment but first a word from our sponsors so give them a little love buckle up we're at the la jolla concord we'll be right back are you wondering what your collector car is worth these days are you thinking about buying a collector car i know who can help my friends at classic.com will help you stay on top of the market so you know which similar vehicles are out there what they're selling for what you should pay and how to price your vehicle go to classic.com slash garage Enter your vehicle's information, specs including the year, make, model, mileage, and options, and they will provide you with a list of recent comparable sales. Their powerful search engine is up to date, finding new listings 
tracking sales and keeping you informed, providing data so you can make the right decision. If you're selling a vehicle, they can help as well with their Classic.com Pro Division, steering you to a qualified professional who will help. Finding the right vehicle and selling your vehicle is all about timing and exposure. So what are you waiting for? Go to Classic.com slash garage and give it a run. That's Classic.com slash garage and tell them Mark sent you. Years ago, when it was time to renew my collector car insurance policy, my carrier's rates went up, way up. But my usage was the same, and I never made a claim. I didn't even have a ticket. So what's with that? So I turned to American Collectors Insurance. Has your collector car insurance recently raised your rates for no good reason? Tired of paying an annual membership fee? Then it's time to look around and call American Collectors Insurance. I shopped around, I asked friends for recommendations, and found a winner that I can trust. And boy, I'm glad I did. I saved hundreds of dollars every year and slept better at night knowing my baby was properly insured. American Collectors Insurance have been protecting vehicles since 1976. They provided me with an agreed value insurance policy backed by their history of taking great care of their clients. What could be better than that? So give them a call and ask for a quote today. 866-ACI-YEAH. That's 866 224 9324 and protect the ones you love like I did with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. They're talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and firsthand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com. All right, we are back, Bruce. So before we get into your role at the La Jolla Concours and being a docent, uh, we learned a lot about that this week from our mutual friend, Wayne Craig. I want to talk a little bit about your life because you've been around for a little while. You're a mature fella, I will say, as you told us your age at the beginning of the show. But I want to go back in time because... Two guys that you worked with were icons in the industry, and we could probably do a hundred shows about your time with these guys. But I'm going to ask you kind of a specific question about each of them. The first being Carol Shelby. What was one of the most fun things, <laughs> and he was a challenge, I'm sure, about working with Carol Shelby? <laughs> I think I would say that Carol Shelby avoided things that seemed to be naughty problems, and he would always seemed to locate the, I hate to say fun stuff, but he was always seemed to locate the, the, the stuff that would be uh, fun. <laughs> In the case of Dan, I think it's fair to say that Dan wanted to be the, he wanted to be the all-American racer. And I think he did a pretty good job of it. You know, he, he was active, what, for, for li- at least 50, maybe longer than that. Oh, gosh. And I saw him race when he was driving for, for uh, on a, in a borrowed Ferrari in Pomona years and years and years, 1959, I guess it would be. So both these guys were were able to uh, keep the business uh, businesses alive and were able to provide um, employment for, for a lot of folks. 
Yeah, they did some amazing things. How did you get involved with each of these guys? Now, this was back in the mid-60s. So, I mean, people must ask you, how did you meet Carol Shelby and end up getting a job? Well, I worked at Ford's Aerospace Facility in Newport Beach, and I went to work there in 1960. So several of us would thought that racing cars were an interesting thing, and it materialized somewhat in the in the 62 to 64 timeframe in that Ford, the automotive company, had operations going both in Europe and in Detroit to develop cars. The fans may remember the purchase of a, of a Broadley GT from Eric Broadley's uh, Lola Cars, and that car still exists and shows up at Concours events. And Ford built copies of that, and then and that became the GT40 and the Ford Mark II and so forth. So all those rear-engine two-seater cars that Ford produced, both for racing and for uh, consumers, that was the, the birthplace of them was the GT that they purchased from Lola Cars. And, uh, of course, there's been 500-page books written about that, so I won't try to capsule that too much. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Lola Cars, I raced a 67 Lola T290 sports racer when I was racing vintage cars. Okay. Wonderful car to drive. But back to Shelby... I mean, you worked in that era of the GT350, and you were telling me in a previous discussion you and I had that the building that those cars were built in, where you worked, is still there today. Is that true? Yes. The facility, uh, Shelby had worked. If, it's difficult to back the story up because you just keep getting more and more tales. But Shelby, <laughs> as you recall, most of his fans will remember that he lost his driver's license, his competition driver's license, through a heart issue. And curiously enough, within six months, Goodyear announced that they would produce a racing tire. And the amazing part was the West Coast distributor of that racing tire was going to be none other than Carroll Shelby. Mm -hmm. So Carroll had this operation going in Culver City where he he sold race tires. And he also did some work with the, with the development of the Cobra, which is another long story. And he uh, stumbled into the facility that was... Lance Ravenlo had used on Princeton Avenue for his uh, race team, mm -hmm. and Lance decided, or Lance was identified as a guy who who had to stop building racing cars because it was becoming a tax problem. So, and and I don't know a lot about that; it's only what I read. But he had a facility, and Shelby took it over. So he that that facility became the facility to start the Cobra racing thing. And uh, so a lot of us who lived in Southern California, were kind of aware of it. Some of us went to racetracks and helped out at doing various things. And so we were more than just casually aware of what was happening. So Shelby became a legend in West LA with his uh, building of Cobras, you know, one and two at a time. And uh, for those who bought his tires, why, they also knew him. So yeah, he was a presence in, in, he never was not a presence. Maybe I should say that. <laughs> yeah. And still, till today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here, you know, the ghost of Carol Shelby lives and breathes. And I was at an event just last Saturday where, uh, the Cobra owners club, um, had, oh, probably a hundred Cobra cars, uh, wow. Cobras and, and Cobra lookalikes that were there. And, and there was a hundred people. And including me, I was selling books about my little story that I had to do with with Carol Shelby. Nice. So anyway, I think it's I think it's fair to say that 
he is truly one of the bigger than life characters of all times. No, certainly no. for those of us had wheels underneath us. Yeah, absolutely. And and Dan, Dan Gurney as well. Well, let's talk a bit about the La Jolla Concours and your role as docent. First and foremost, a lot of people think of that term as just for art galleries and so forth. Some people have never even heard the term. They go, what's a docent? But for Concours events, you're one of the kind people that donates their time to spend with people talking about these cars, the history of these cars, and unveiling things that many people won't know when they walk by a car. So can you talk a little bit about your role as a docent, why you do this, what this means to you, and and what a docent does at a Concorde? Well, of course, if I said to you, uh, if I arrogantly said to you, I was a history professor, you'd have an image pop, it would pop. So what we are is we're automobile history professors who are not teaching, if you will. And we don't give exams and we, et cetera. So what we do is we think we know and we work at keeping track of and currently, you know, what's happening, who owns this car? Where did it come from? How did it come about? And you might argue that there is, uh, uh, I guess I would think you might argue that there's a, there's a time and a place for everything. And in my case, I grew up across the street from a man by the name of Fred Offenhauser. And Fred Offenhauser is a name that goes back in the in the pre-World War II days as a builder of engines. And yes. I won't bore you with all those details, but he was he was one of a very significant number of characters. He was one of the great characters of the USA racing efforts in the pre-war and in the immediate post-war effort. He his company made engines and sold them to people who built race cars. Um, so I always felt like I was born in a, in a neighborhood where I couldn't possibly, I delivered in a newspaper. So I felt as a little kid. Wow. It took a while to, who is Fred and what's he doing? And that, that becomes another story. But what's neat about that is I can tell that a little bit of that and in a docent group, and, and there will be people who will say, oh, oh, is that, does that guy and so on and so forth. They will re- react to that. So the job of the docent is to try to tie the cars or the, the, the stuff to something that people can understand and, and relate to. And um, some of it is my dad's uh, history and so on and so forth. So, uh, and there's still some hundred-year-old legends, guys who are older than me around who are really good at it. Um, Ed, Ed Iskandarian being one, I, he, he built auto race parts for right after the war and he continues to build them yeah. and he is 102 years old. Now it's hard to believe some guy 102 can wander around and be knowledgeable and talkative and so forth. But Ed Iskandarian is a, is an amazing man. Yes. Is- Isky is the, all of his, his friends call them, right? Yes. Well, he shows up at these shows. And, um, you know, I have, have a story about him, my own personal story about it. So uh, anyway, but that's that's kind of what what we we saw. And, and that's kind of what we, we think. It, we think that people need to know about these cars because they know the, the history of a piece of art. They know the p- history of an architect there, uh, you know, and you start looking around and you start touching things and you realize that lots and lots of folks have lots of interests in, in many, many things and automobiles are certainly high on the list of things that people are interested about, but frequently they don't have the time or the inclination to want to go do it. But occasionally they'll say, let's go to the concourse. Normally it has to do with some charitable events. And the next thing you know, we have a concourse in La Jolla. Yeah. 
Loya is a is an interesting town, real nice venue, and uh, they have they managed to bring a lot of cars out to that show. Oh, it's a beautiful event. I grew up in La Jolla, and I'm, I, I call it homecoming going back to that event. And what I uh, suggest to people, you're going to the Concours on Sunday, which you should, is get there early. There's a great places to have breakfast in La Jolla. You can uh, park and then walk down to the water and enjoy the event. So uh, go and do that. Ed Iskandarian was a guest about four years ago, so I think to date he's still the eldest guest who's ever been on the show. I believe he was 98 at the time. Like you said, he's 102. Uh, Yeah, I have a feeling, Bruce, I should have you back and we should just talk about all the people you've known over time in some of your stories. But I want to stay on task today with the La Jolla Concours. Now, I understand that one of the special things that are going to be at the Concours this year is a lineup of Duesenbergs like maybe you've never seen before. Is that true? That looks like it from the roster. I've seen the preliminary roster. I, I haven't seen it long enough to, to count the cars, but there's a lot of Duesenbergs coming. Yeah. And of course, uh, that's a whole nother, you know, you could have a, you could have a Duesenberg con- concourse, if you know what I mean. Oh, you yes. could just focus on one brand and yeah. have that. Yeah. Wouldn't that be something? So uh, let's talk a little bit about perhaps some of the cars that'll be there that you're excited to see. Are there maybe two or three cars that you're looking forward to seeing? Well, I'm always interested in, in the race cars of the 60s and 70s, mostly because I was either with Shelby or with Gurney. I, was, I, had, I had my fingers on a lot of them. And, uh, and, of course, you know, most of the eagles that we built and sold to other people, I was involved in the transaction. That's overstating it, but, you know, we, uh, we did make sure that customers' cars got the same treatment that team cars got. And that sort of is an inside baseball comment, but it's it's absolutely true. We built and sold cars, and uh, we were supported by Goodyear in this effort. So we wanted to be sure that the customers' cars got all the hot tip ticket stuff. Yeah. That was uh, part of my job was to make sure that, that our customers who bought cars from us were able to get whatever was the special stuff. I believe that Dan felt that he could take any car that he got into and outdrive his customers. So uh, we'll, we'll never know, but I think that's the way he looked at it. <laughs> of course. And he, he certainly, he certainly proved it on several occasions. Well, yeah. Will, will there be some race cars at the Concours of that era that you're looking forward to seeing? Well, yes, the preliminary uh, roster shows several cars and uh, it's always surprises, you know, people bring cars that are that are uh, something special. I really think the Duesenbergs, which of course is the car of the immediate pre-depression era thing, and of course they were put out of business as were many many automobile companies by the depression. So, uh, they were, you know, they they were not able to come back after and um the the failures as the stuff of many 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 elaborate books. Oh, of course. It might be fair to add a comment about Duesenbergs at this point. A man by the name of Randy Ema, who is I'm working almost exclusively on Duesenbergs. He had told I was with a group, and he had told us that he had started in 1967, specializing in restoring Duesenbergs in the city of Orange, and. Um, Recently, he purchased all of the assets of the company and has stored them in his home uh, in Tustin. So he has 
all the drawings and all the assets to make a uh, a car. Uh, you know, so it's it's an impressive uh, array of stuff. Randy was a guest here on Cars, yeah, and he is the consummate expert on these vehicles, and uh, always a delight to to talk with. You know, the the people that we've just touched on today that you've known in your life are pretty amazing. Has there been one person maybe you can just talk about today uh, briefly uh, that has been a big inspiration to you, maybe an influential person or a mentor in your life? Uh, well, I thought about that a little bit. There's three guys who go I go back to who I worked for. And it's funny how people you work for, you remember, and people you work for, you forget. But these three guys seem to be one of these guys helped me get a job at a company called Air Research Manufacturing. And we manufactured pressurization and breathing systems for high altitude uh, aircraft. Frank Warga was his name. And he said to me, he said, I'm looking for somebody to take my job. Uh, this was in, as I graduated from college. I'd worked there for about five years at night. And uh, I graduated from college and was invited to go to General Electric. And Frank headed me off and said, I looked at your resume. I looked at your background. You've been here for five years. You know our price. You know our company. He said, I'm looking for, and he rattled off some criteria. And he said, and you fit all that criteria. Why don't you stay here? And I'll give you a, a job you'll never forget. And that's a pretty bold statement. Yeah. So I accepted. And uh, this gets into a job history, which I won't bore you with. But Frank was uh, instrumental in, in sending me. And all my friends graduated from college and zoomed off into a tie and a white shirt job. And I zoomed off into a tube bending shop where I learned my first job was bending tubes and learning how to bend tubes. And it was a art form and a skill that was not common. And then I went from there to a foundry and from that to some other specialty fabrication. So Frank was good to his word and he, it, it didn't quite work out the way we had planned, but that's, that's another story for another time. <laughs> okay. But it was, uh, it was good. And I, I always looked at him. And you mentioned two other fellows. Well, Harry Larson was my favorite intellectual. He was an intellectual who was not an overbearing intellectual. He had a lot to do with the space program. I went to Ford Aerospace, and uh, in the process of working for several different people, I wound up working for Harry. And he was a systems engineer and had two degrees in electrical engineering, had his name on a whole bunch of patents, and had been the had run the first computer west of the Mississippi River at UCLA back in the sort of early 50s. He'd been picked at Ford Aerospace to be one of their key computer guys. He just, his way of doing business and his style was low key, but brilliant. And I just, you know, there's, there's once in a while you meet somebody and, you know, he could be the Shah of Iran or he could be Gandhi and you would, you just connect with him. And he, his wife and my wife were good friends and so forth. So anyway, that, and I was working for him when I left to go to work for Carol Shelby. He said, he said to me, he said, that sounds like a fun job. And I said, I'm not sure it is, but we had this debate like that. And he said, you want to trade? You want to trade? Yeah. Yeah. Right. The yeah. grass looks greener as they say, but uh, sounds like a wonderful man. And then there was a third person you mentioned. Well, the last guy was Herb Karsh and Herb Karsh was 
Uh, he was a senior, senior guy in, in sort of the second rank, well, just below the general manager of Aerotronic at Ford Aerospace. I wound up working on proposals, which is a big deal in the aerospace business because you're always looking for new work. And, and new work means that you have to find problems to be solved. That's kind of the way that works. And, and I had a lot of manufacturing background, and a lot of the guys that were involved in the intellectual side of the program had, did not. And so I wound up becoming a sort of, what we got to, who's writing the manufacturing section in this? Get Bruce to do that. And so <laughs> that's kind of how my life went and at, at Aerotronic for a while. Well, Cars was in charge of the development of many of these proposals, and he was a retired army officer and he'd been in the horse cavalry and then he'd been in the artillery. Oh my gosh. And uh, wow. that much I knew because uh, he had stories to tell. Later, many, many, many years later, I discovered that not only was he doing that, but he was given the job of establishing a place called White Sands Proving Ground. And that, as you may know, is the place where they yeah. did the bomb as well as the rockets and so forth. So so he had a he had a pretty serious resume and he was a uh, he was a bit of a sort of a bull of the woods guy. But he uh, he said to me one day, he says there the Ford guys want to build a specialty car, and he said they were they asked if we had anybody down here at Aerotronic that would be a good candidate for doing some of that kind of work. <laughs> Let Bruce do it. <laughs> yeah, well, he said, here's what it is, and I said, okay, this sounds like it might be a job that would last for six months, maybe, huh? And he said, no, no, no. I said, well, who's in charge? Can't tell you, he said. I said, that seals it. Boy, oh boy, do I want to sign up for that yeah, job. Yeah, really. And he, said, <laughs> and he said, so after several weeks of banning this back and forth, he finally said, I got permission to tell you who's involved. And I said, okay. So he told me, he says, Carol Shelby. And I said, not on your life. I wouldn't go to work for those guys. I said, <laughs> you know, that looks like a, to a minimum wage job, he said. That's how that started. And wow. so the question was, what are they going to do? And of course, this was long before anything had materialized. This was in the spring and summer of 64. And uh, wow. the thing that happened was that Ford decided that they would build the Mustang. And, and of course, with the history that Ford had with the Edsel, with the the Falcon wasn't a very well-accepted car. So they, they had these sorts of things. Well, as you may or may not know, the, the Ford Mustang, they introduced it in April, and by November, April 64, and by November of 64, they had sold 200,000 cars. <laughs> Hit a home run on that one. <laughs> yeah, right. Two times, home, you know, at least. Yeah. So that still didn't reconcile the Shelby touching the, the, the Mustang. Yeah. but. After some discussion with several Ford guys who were involved, uh, uh, Ray Geddes and Sam Smith and a couple of other guys that were involved in those days, I finally said, uh, this is, this sounds too interesting. And then uh, th at this point, then in a conversation I have with people, I usually dump a whole bunch of stuff on the table and they, and they're, they're lost. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, the kind of stuff that happens is they built these little cars, which they managed to convince Chapman to do a modification. And so they, uh, Chapman's company would do a conversion. They managed to have uh, escort 
Ford Escort. So the Escort came Mod 1, Mod 2, Mod 3, Mod 4. And of course, a Mod 4 was a very, very, very limited car. And was those were campaigned by Colin Chapman with Jimmy Clark at the wheel and were amazing cars, especially with Clark, because he, he was really fast in those yeah. cars. Oh, yeah. So anyway, that was going on in England and in Germany. And of course, because the magazine coverage of that stuff was was much more limited in those days because we just didn't have the communication links. So they would have a story about them. So the escort team would do this. And then the, then they had a, a, the Comstock brothers in Canada raced rally cars. And so Ford was doing this stuff. And slowly but surely, the, the Falcons were becoming picked up and, and were campaigned in Europe. So this mm. only made the Mustang thing more exciting. Yeah. So the result was that Ford decided that they would do a FIA production Mustang and it would be a B production car. And that was very key because in order to be a qualified FIA B production car, you had to build at least a hundred. And in those days, the object Ford decided we're not building a hundred, we're going to build 500. So, so that became the target. And so we, uh, I say we, they had moved along to this point. They somehow convinced me that I should join them. And so I did. And so they had already made contacts with Northrop Aircraft Company to rent a big building. And so we went over. And uh, the sad part about this is that I was given a roll of drawings that used had the Northrop building in them. And suddenly what happened was I joined Shelby Winston about two weeks after I joined him, Northrop backed out of the, the transaction and said, we have to keep the building. We're going to do something else. And, and so they used the convenience of the government clause because they were in the aerospace business and that allowed them to just simply say, sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> so we lost the building. Oh, wow. So I, I stepped into a job with a, with a sort of a pre-laid out building. That wasn't to be. Suddenly, no building. Yeah, wow. So what happened was we had to go find a building. Shelby's lawyer suggested that we see Jim Kilroy, a real estate guy in the LAX, LA airport area, very well-known guy. And we went and visited his his shop without even picking up a pencil. He said, why don't you guys go over and take a look at those two hangers that are over there? I mean, he really didn't want to be involved. He just wanted to get us in and out. We went over there and I took a look at the buildings and I said to Shelby, I said, this is a, this is perfect. I said, we have 12 acres of property. We have 300,000 square feet of buildings that were used for airplane conversions. Yeah. And I, I had had a, a very brief uh, employment with North American. And during that, I'd learned something about some of the facilities. And these hangars had been used to renovate and upgrade F-100s and F-86s and T-39s, which were military aircraft. And in the aerospace business of that era, the late 50s, what they did was they, they, they would deliver airplanes to the government, and then they would have a Model A, and they would have a Model B and a C and so forth. And they would sell those modifications to the government, who then would snap them up, and then they would set up a site. Well, these two hangars had become the site for North American to do that. So we have somewhere in the maze, I have some pictures of, of some of that stuff. Nice. So anyway, that would be the site that we would do the Mustangs in. I like to ask guests about a challenge that they faced. Again, I think that could make 100 stories in your case because you've worked with so many interesting people. But but is there one that stands out in your life that was a really valuable lesson? Well, the valuable lesson was 
somewhere in this thing you can you can look in the mirror and suddenly you become bigger than life and so i decided that many years later i decided that i had a full-time job and i was running a, uh, a, a an operation that had to do with making automobile wheels so i decided what i needed was another job that would another business that would earn living and i could develop it and i had a real job and real children and a real wife and all this stuff but i would go and build myself a building and find myself a building that would or a facility that was making something that i could manage and it turned out to be i decided i could manage a company that was making a thing called camper shells camper shells are those little boxes that you see on the back of pickup trucks and what it does is it environmentally seals off the back of the pickup truck so you can haul valuable stuff in the back of the pickup truck. Right. And of course, if you're really adventurous, you can put your sleeping bags back there and limit. So I decided that, that I had, uh, I had uh, worked in motorhomes. I, I built motorhomes. And uh, so I was, the, I was the factory manager for two motorhome companies. So this is a piece of cake. So I decided that I would take this piece of cake and I would start it up and I would, I bought one and went out and did it. And it turned out that it didn't work. And, what I found was that arrogance is one of the things that you, you, you don't see coming sometimes it sneaks <laughs> in through your back pocket. So yeah, it didn't work. It didn't make any money. And I found myself with a whole bunch of little problems like a building lease that I had agreed to and like a building that was not to code and like a sales guy who decided who owned the business that I bought from and said, yeah, I don't want the business. I don't want to do all this other stuff. I just want to sell. Well, he wanted to sell someplace else. He did not want to sell for me. Yeah. So, so I wound up with a business, and uh, when I say arrogance, maybe that's the wrong word, but it was clear that I was uh, I'd over overdone it, and I was having. So, I I learned early on that you have to not too early on that you had to uh, know what you were doing, and you had to be careful about getting into things that you might regret. Yes. Does that make sense? It makes a world of sense. Yes, I understand 100%. Yeah, let's move on to something maybe more fun than that memory might be, although it did teach you some lessons for sure. A special vehicle in your life. I have a feeling you've maybe had one or two. Is there one that you can share with us? Well, I recall a very long time ago when I was over wearing an army suit in Korea that I read about Porsche winning in 1,100cc cars at Le Mans. And I thought, this is really interesting. I thought they were pretty nifty cars. So I thought I should have one of those. Well, of course, when you got out of the Army, you went to, I went to school, so I didn't have any money to buy any fancy uh, Porsches. But And when I got out of the Army, a Porsche was about $3,500. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and, and a Chevrolet was about $2,100. Do I need to expand on that? <laughs> understood. Yeah, understood. So anyway, I thought Porsches were neat, and I thought I ought to have one. Well, many years later, not too many years later, maybe in the, in the early early 60s, late 50s, early 60s, I found a Speedster. Oh, wow. And I thought, oh, it's a 55 Speedster, which if you're a Porsche file, you know that that was, a, that was an introduction of uh, Max Hoffman into the, into the $3,000 sports car market right. that was booming and popping and so on and so forth in the sort of post-Korean War era. But let's talk about 1954 to about 1958. That In that period of time, 
you know, there was lots and lots of British cars. And Spain, Spaniards built some cars. There was a variety of cars. And, of course, Volkswagen arrived. And, uh, and Max Hoffman had a lot of influence in the cars in those days. But I decided I should have a, a Speedster. And I, and I, I but decided I wanted to buy a Porsche. And I found one in my neighborhood. And I said, oh, and I talked to this guy about it. And he said, oh, yeah. He said, I've ordered a new coupe. Oh, okay. Well, how's that? Well, he said, I had the speedster. And he said, we took a trip and my wife got badly sunburned in the car. And he said, she went in the hospital. So we agreed that we will never again own an open car. So that meant that what he had done was he had taken the, the speedster that he was selling and he had built a metal, a metal top from a Nash metropolitan piece. And he formed this top and it was perfect sort of look and fit. It was, he had taken this square thing and he turned it into a round shape, put it on the back of the car. And then he had made bracketry and special stuff so that the car, the base car was not changed in any way, shape or form, but the top had these features to it and so forth. So I, I bought that. And it was about 125, if I can remember the numbers. So it was that, that eight, eight Oh, 125. And that I think translated to be about the 125th car that they built, the speedster they built. Anyway, so I bought that and, and that was my first car. And then as luck would have it, I, it had 80,000 miles on it. And I decided to put oil and I changed, did an oil change on it. And I took the non-detergent oil out of the car and I put detergent oil in. And that was a, a kiss of death because what happened was it took all of the, the guck that was in the engine and took it out. It was holding so it together. rattled like crazy. And I learned a, a super valuable object lesson. And uh, I, I bought a filter, a special filter that the Porsche Club guys had said, very good. And I bought it from a guy named Roly Free. And Roly Free is a guy who is famous for riding a Black Shadow, Vincent Black Shadow at Bonneville in his underwear. And, um, <laughs> Another character you know, in your life. There's pictures of him in motorcycle <laughs> magazines all over the world. Anyway, and he had the franchise for these filters. So anyway, so I, I and that was my, sort of my favorite Porsche for a very, very long time. And then I bought a 62 coupe when I went to work for Shelby. Well, that didn't do Shelby. Shelby, everybody insisted that I should you know, get rid of my Porsche and drive a Mustang. So we managed to, I managed to have a Mustang, but I did put the Porsche in a Shelby garage with a cover on it. So it sort of rested there. And then later on, I sold it. But wow. the favorite car, I think of all times was the 55 Speedster. Yeah. And uh, uh. I still have a picture or two of it in my stuff. Well, I've always wanted a 356. They've become unobtainium these days. They're so uh, expensive. But uh, yeah, uh, shoulda, woulda, coulda. And you did it. So back in the day. Well, I had several. I, I owned the Speedster. Then I bought another coupe. And then I bought another coupe. And then when I went to work for Shelby, I had my fourth one. Oh, and wow. it was a 62. Oh, wow. And so at Pebble Beach here, oh, I don't know, three or four years ago, I was walking along on the road up there and here was a red 65 with a phone number. And I, and, and he, this guy wanted $25,000 for the car. And I thought that's, that's about two X what I want to pay, but maybe. And so I called him and called him and called, and I must've made 20 phone calls to the number that was on the little plaque on the window, but I never reached the guy. So, you know, it was, 
not to happen. Probably sold it. Now, you mentioned earlier in our talk a book that you wrote about your time at Shelby. Is that book available? Yes. And where can people find it? Well, I suppose uh, I have a card and and they can send me a, a note. I, I, I'm not a very good marketing guy. And uh, but a lady friend of mine took on the marketing responsibility. So I have a cart with her name on it with a picture and of the cars. And so we can send it to them. It's 40 bucks. And uh, I had a, sh- a st- sort of shocking experience last Saturday. I went to General Lyons Air Museum and they were having a Shelby gathering. Mark Foster, the guy I know who runs the facility. And he, he Mark, had the thing and invited me to come down and, and I sold 30 bucks. Nice. Now, what's the title of the book? The Race Before the Race. Ah, okay. And and that's this kind of insider thing. The race that Shelby had, if we go back to Bruce's starting story, when when we got the building, at that point, the Mustangs were coming. And that was in the fall of October of 1964. and And the Mustang cars were coming. Because of several things, one of which was the racers, there was going to be 500 cars, 500 streetcars and 50 racers built. Eventually, I, th- I believe, I'm told, they, they only built 35 racers. But the idea was that in order to have those 35 or 50 racers, they needed to have the 100 cars homologated, which became 500. And, of course, those cars today are valuable, valuable, valuable. And we find people, and, and, and of course, they went on to build them and build them and so forth. But the facility at the airport, we turned into an auto rework plan, and we took the cars apart. And then we put it back together again. Well, the race before the race was when I landed there and we started with the thing and so forth. And we went through the exercise of finding another building. And so we found a facility. We could go work. And then we went to up north to the Ford guys uh, to San Jose. And I said, well, why can't you guys take some of the parts off? And he said, Ford policy says you must drive the cars off production line. So anything that you have that you think would disable the car, like taking the valve covers off. He said, we can't do that. So we have to deliver it to you. You take the stuff off, and then it's up to you to get rid of the stuff. Well, that was a little detail that nobody had bothered to mention. And uh, it was not a big problem, but it was a problem because we had a lot of stuff to try to get rid of. And, of course, used auto parts created problems with the dealers because the dealers felt that was a channel, a back channel for low-cost parts. And, And they were selling parts. So you were undercutting the dealers. And so that was another little fuss budget thing. Hmm. So am I making sense? Oh yeah. 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 And you know, different, different times. Yeah. You couldn't put them on eBay. So it comes Christmas time and unknown to me, Shelby says, we're going to, we're going to take the guys. We're going to go back to Dearborn. They're going to have a big party at Dearborn and Ford's going to make some big announcements. And so nothing stuck in my brain. None of it stuck because I figured the building of the GT350, which was not known with that name yet, the, the building of the FIA Mustang, that was a big big item on my plate. And I figured just, just getting the facility set up to do that and handling those cars and taking them in and out and so on. So, and of course, we occupied a new building, so we had all the things to take care of including wiring and so this is in November and we go into December in December. They, if I have my facts, right. And I may not, but in December we were invited to this party and it was everybody in Ford's racing program, stock car guys, the international guys, the guys from Europe, the guys from Canada, even people from South Africa arrived at this thing. And there was a big sort of handshaking and all this and meet Mr. Ford at 
So, but then they announced that there will be some big announcements coming. Oh, what's that? And so it turned out that they announced that Shelby would be responsible for the Ford's international racing effort. And, and I must confess to you, that didn't connect real well with me. I thought, huh? Yeah, <laughs> what's going on? Well, it turned out that that was the arrival of the GT40 and the Mark IIs and so on yeah, and so forth. Yeah. And they wound up coming to Shelby's place. Well, at this point, Shelby had said, you know, what are we going to do with all this space? And I said, rather laughingly, I said, we'll find a place to park cars and we'll, we'll use up all the space. Well, now, as you can probably guess, the space using up situation now uh, completely, completely identified itself. Yes. So now we have, uh, so now we have, we're going to build cars, which we're going to ship around the world. Well, guess where the Shelby American operation is at a air freight center. Mm-hmm. How did that work out? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so when, so when you say, you know, there's some divine intervention somewhere and Shelby's <laughs> magic, uh, well, yeah. we have some pictures of loading co- the Cobra Daytona coupe in an air freighter, you know, and, yeah. and, you know, a lot of pictures we didn't get taken, but we should have, yeah. but that was the, but the race before the race was the race to get ready to take, not only build the Mustangs, but to get the Fords, to get Ford Motor Company's international racing program supported because the Shelby operation had been doing GT cars and racing them, mm-hmm. but the idea that they would be running these, the GT forties and, and those cars, and then yeah. on to build the market. Different thing. How can people find the book? Where do they go to buy the book? Call me or send me an email. There's no website or anything like that? No, I not at my fingertips. Okay. How's that? I could send you a card or I could tell you, bjourner at cox.net. Okay, cool. So before I let you go today, Bruce, uh, maybe uh, parting words of thoughts or wisdom on uh, why people should attend the La Jolla Concord? If you want to see some world-class automobiles, and, and automobiles are, are at all interesting to you, come to this show because they will present cars that are just engineering masterpieces and also masterpieces of, of Americana. It sounds a little hokey, but American cars are, were marvels of, of efficiency and on and on. And they were also marvels of engineering. Mm. and. You know, the the British built the railroads, but the Americans built the cars. Yeah. And that's kind of my view. So, yeah, you can come and see cars that were movie stars owned and things like that. You can meet people who have spent a fortune, literally, restoring a car or restoring some cars. And, of course, there's a whole spectrum of that. So if car- automobiles are something that strikes you as being interesting in your life, is this is a great way to see an assembled bunch with people who own them and are all you have to do is touch a couple of buttons and the next thing you know you've gotten a life story of somebody who has you know the my grandfather owned this car and yeah and and away you go so you can yes it's like going to an art show but or it's like going to a fashion show or it's like going to any other show of fabulous goods Oh, absolutely. And I always suggest people talk to the owners. You'll learn amazing things about these vehicles. Take the time to spend a little, a few moments, or it could be a lot of moments uh, with these owners because they love to talk. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and they're tickled to death, you know, when you ask, what does this do? And people always act like they'll, the owner will say, what, 
what the hell? Don't you know anything? And the answer is no. The owner's tickled to death to say that, well, now that little switch does this. And let me open the hood and show you how that, where that is and where it works. So, so the owners are, you know, they've got a pent up capability to talk for an hour. The only problem you have is you can't get away from it. <laughs> there you go. Well, again, uh, this event takes place April 21st, 22nd, 23rd. Go to the website, LaHoyaConcord.com. You'll see all the different events from the opening gala. They're having a tour. There's the Porsches on Prospect on Saturday night, which will be fantastic. Uh, Bruce, of course, our guest today will be there. I will be there, so look for both of us. Bruce, thanks for spending some time with me today. I think I have to have you back and talk about some of the many characters you've met in your life until you and I talk again, my friend. I'll see you at the La Jolla Concours. Okay. We'll have some fun. I'll be looking for you. I will keep my, I will keep my phone on speed dial and try to find you. Okay, okay. I will be there for sure. 20, 50, or 100 years from now, will there be a workforce to care for the collector vehicles we love? With auto shop programs disappearing across the country, it's a question we enthusiasts have to ask. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these vehicles aren't lost to time. One of the many ways RPM which is short for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship, is accomplishing this goal is through workforce development initiatives. The RPM Apprenticeship Program enables the next generation of artisans to earn a living while they learn the craft of restoring and preserving these vehicles directly from industry professionals. The Endangered Skills Program documents the process of masters training future craftspeople on a variety of critical skills in danger of being lost forever. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of the collector vehicle skills trade, visit RPM Foundation today. They're one of the charities of choice here on Cars Yeah! Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up! a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!